Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, we continue looking at the flood legends throughout history, and Pastor Larry Spargimino has an update on our outreach to prisoners. Many wonderful opportunities to show your support for Watchmen on the Wall are available, from purchasing a book or DVD, attending a conference, or contributing to our studio renovation project. These are all ways to support the ministry and outreach of SWRC. Our Studio 50 project is underway, and people from all over the country have been responding. The studio where this program is recorded has equipment that is over 30 years old. We need to update and upgrade not only our microphones, speakers, and audio consoles, we also need to bring all of our recording software up to date. Would you prayerfully consider giving a gift to our Studio 50 project? The goal is $50,000. This includes all needed equipment, software, and installation. Please, support the Studio 50 project with a gift today. You can give when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can contribute online, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. My friends, thank you for your prayers and support of Southwest Radio Ministries. Yesterday, we began to learn about the flood legends that are all throughout the histories and cultures of the world. Today, author Charles Martin is back to continue to explore the global clues of a common event. Did you know there are over 300 myths from all over the world about a major flood? If a worldwide flood never happened, then why are there so many stories about it? Joining me once again on The Watchman on the Wall to discuss flood legends is Charles Martin. Charles has written an excellent book called Flood Legends, Global Clues of a Common Event. And Charles, I'm grateful that you've taken time out of your busy schedule. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for being on again with me. Thank you again for having me. Appreciate it. Well, Charles, we were talking yesterday about the book Flood Legends, and I want to back up in case somebody missed that segment. I want to talk about the term telephone mythology. Would you once again explain what you meant by telephone mythology in the book Flood Legends and how that applies to Noah's Flood? Yeah, absolutely. Just like the game of telephone, where you have a group of people who you know, they tell a story, and then the next person tells a story, and the next person tells a story. By the time you get to the end, the story is completely changed. I think the same thing has happened in mythology. And personally, I believe that this explains both the prevalence of the story globally. All right, If it happened, this is something that cultures are going to tell each other over and over again. But it also explains the differences that we do see, because we do see differences between the stories. They're not all identical. And what telephone mythology explains is where those differences come about. That is, the story gets passed down from person to person, from generation to generation. It's going to change a little bit each time. I think that's the linchpin there, that idea of the telephone game. Well, we were talking about the Tower of Babel last time. You said that was very important in your theory. Remind us again about what happened in Genesis 11 and tell us how that factors into your telephone mythology of flood legends. Genesis tells us that people decided that they wanted to build a tower a monument to themselves. They wanted to build a tower that would reach the heavens. That the heavens, they wanted to basically become their own God. And God just said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he scattered them, and he 
changed languages. He confused their languages. That's what Babel means, right? So he confused their languages. Personally, I believe that's where telephone mythology really kicks off because what you now have are isolated groups of people who can't communicate with other groups of people, and they're being scattered all over the planet. Genesis 10 gives us a list of the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, mm-hmm. many of whom happened after the Tower of Babel, and a lot of their names coincide with other regions and countries that we now know today. And so that scattering, I think, is really what the impetus behind the telephone mythology changes that we see. I was surprised to learn from your book that many cultures also have a story of a Tower of Babel, if you will, or a story of languages being confused. Would you elaborate on that, maybe share one or two of those? So what's interesting is that the Tower of Babel story is just as prevalent, maybe not quite as prevalent, but almost as prevalent as the flood story. We find that in ancient Mesopotamia, the Assyrians and Hittites had stories. People in Ghana and the Congo have it. In East Africa, you can find it all the way down into Australia. You can find it in China. You can find it all over the place, absolutely everywhere. And I think the most interesting part of that is that at some point, what you find is the stories either have scattering of people without a tower, or they have the tower without the scattering of people. But even in all those different versions, you have some really cool ones, like in, I believe it was Ghana, one of their gods decided to desert man, and he retreated into heaven. And an old woman in that village decided that she wanted to reach him and build a tower out of bricks. But as they climbed, the tower fell and everybody died. Right? And I think what's interesting is that in this story from Ghana, they were trying to reach God. And that's very similar to the Genesis story. But it's just the tower. And I think we have another one in, I think it was the Congo, where they wanted to know what the moon was. So they decided to stack poles on each other. And they just kept climbing. They just kept casting poles because they were trying to reach the moon. In other words, trying to reach up to the heavens. And the tower got too tall and it collapsed and they all died. And nobody ever decided to find out what the moon was after that. That's how the story ends which is probably good advice for all of us. In the book Flood Legends, you devote a large portion of the book to comparing three sources, the Hindu, the Karina, and the Hebrew narratives of the Flood. Why did you pick those three versions, and what was your purpose in comparing them? Well, obviously I picked the Hebrew version because that's the truth. I picked the one in the Bible. Really, I was working in academia. Like we said yesterday, I was working in an academic setting where people dismissed the Bible, but they didn't know it, right? They were dismissing something they never even read. And I wanted people to at least be introduced to some Bible, if not the whole thing. That was an automatic in there. I knew that wasn't going to change. The Hindu version I picked specifically because I could translate it myself. One of the attacks I see on the Bible is, well, you know, we can't call it a global flood because we don't know what the original language said. Well, turns out that I was learning how to read and translate Sanskrit, so I found a copy of the story in the original language and I translated it myself. And I can say 100% that in the Hindu version, at least, they knew the flood was global. They knew that everything on earth was killed, and they knew that life had to restart at the end of the flood. And so, at least in the Hindu version, we can put that argument to rest. So I picked Southeast Asia, I picked the Middle East, and then I wanted one from the Americas, and I found a version from the Karenia people. They live in the Caribbean. And it was just such an interesting story that was so completely different from Genesis until you start reading it carefully. And then it was very, very similar. And I'll give you just one. This is just an example of the kind of comparisons I do. But in Genesis, we're told that Noah was a righteous man. 
that he was holy, that he walked with God, and that he was blameless in his generation. And Noah and his seven family members, so eight people, boarded the ark and were saved from the flood. In the Karenia culture, they have four different gods, and the main god is called Caputano. And Caputano came down and he said, people of earth, there's going to be a flood. And nobody believed him. They all laughed at him. They said, you're not God. You don't know what you're talking about. But four couples were terrified at his words. And they said, we believe you. What do we need to do? And so he, with them, built a very large canoe where they put on animals and they put on seeds for food and for planting afterwards. And they survived the flood. And what I found really interesting was there was eight people on this boat. And while we're not told that these eight people were necessarily walking with God or righteous, what they did do, though, was believe and fear what their God told them. And that's really what walking with God is. It's recognizing that he's God and we're not, and it's obeying him. And I realized, wow, those stories actually aren't all that different. They're not that strange from each other. Maybe that points to this common thread that has filtered over the years, but just changed to fit the culture that was retelling it. Wow. Well, if you're just joining us, my guest is Charles Martin, the author of the book Flood Legends. It's a wonderful book, and you can get a copy right now by calling 1-800-652-1144, or you can order online swrc.com. That toll-free number, once again, 1-800-652-1144, and our website is swrc.com. Now, Charles, we've been talking about Noah and the flood from Genesis, so let's go back and talk about the cargo that Noah took with him on the ark. According to Genesis now, what did Noah take? Noah was told to take seeds and plants for food and to feed the animals. And the animals are the interesting thing, because I grew up hearing he took two of every animal, and actually he didn't. He took two of every unclean animal, but of clean animals he took... And it's not clear, the Hebrew isn't clear. He either took seven or seven pairs of animals. Quite a few animals. I bet the ship smelled terrific. Um, just <laughs> lots, lots of animals and lots and lots of seeds. Other flood stories also have animals also being saved on a boat of some type. Isn't that correct? Yeah, well, I just mentioned the Karenia. They had animals. Several others, East Asian ones. Yeah, animals. Animals are often saved. For the most part, our culture has turned Noah's Ark into a cartoon storybook or bath time toy for children. However, I recently was able to make a trip to see the Ark encounter that Answers in Genesis built in Kentucky, and I was impressed by the size of that ship. Would you, for those who are not familiar, would you describe the dimensions of Noah's Ark? <laughs> yeah, the bathtub toys with little animals just spilling out all over the place mm -hmm. are ridiculous because the actual Ark itself, according to the Bible, and I don't remember the dimensions, but I remember that the total volume was somewhere in the vicinity of one and a half million cubic feet. Wow. Roughly 300 to 500 railroad cars, depending on what kind of car you're using. Absolutely enormous. The thing was a very solidly built rectangle, so it's not going to capsize the way the cartoon bathtub ones would do. <laughs> Just absolutely enormous. The History Channel, or Discovery, will air a program that says Noah's flood was a local flood. However, the clear teaching of the Bible is that it was a worldwide flood. You had mentioned this earlier, but do the other flood stories also have the worldwide flood narrative? Yes, they do. They absolutely do. I did talk about the Hindi one, several Chinese versions. It is an absolute global flood, and I'm going to actually alter this just a tiny bit because what really strikes me 
is how catastrophic it is in the literature. And even in Genesis, the word flood isn't the normal word for flood. It's mabul, which means basically a cataclysm. But in the Hindu version, we're told that the ship was reeling like a drunken sailor and that everything was disordered and that there was nothing but darkness and sky and sea and there was no land. And in China, it talks about fire coming up out of the water and great plumes of smoke coming out and threatening the lives of the people on the boat and that the sun went completely dark for many days. That sort of level of destruction wiped out everything. I hear the detractors talk about how it's a local flood. I hear the History Channel say that. But you can't actually read those stories and believe that they thought that. They all clearly, clearly believed it was global, no doubt. Charles, isn't it also true that most of the flood legends say that the ark came to rest on a mountain? Yeah, that one is so common. That is absolutely prevalent. Now, obviously, the mountain is different in each story, but I kind of brought that up yesterday when I said that you're sitting in India telling your kid that there was a global flood, and you're probably not going to tell him that it happened way, way far away. You're going to point to a mountain outside the window. So I would expect it to be at different mountains as those cultures influence it. But the fact that it lands on a mountain in most stories is staggering if we're trying to say that it's local, because how would it get up a mountain? Another connection that the flood legends have is the use of birds or the sending out of animals to test for dry land. Would you elaborate on that as well? That's also interesting, and I really go into detail in the book on this. But the stories do change, but you can actually track those changes. Where in the Middle East, you have the survivor of the flood, whether it's Noah or somebody else, sending out birds. But then as the stories move away from the Middle East in concentric circles, you have them sending out other animals or you have birds coming to them to alert to them that the land is back. And then eventually, until you get, if we're looking at the Middle East as the epicenter, until you get to the very edges, you know, you get to Australia, you get to the Americas, then you start having other animals, like otters or elk or, you know, whatever, diving down and bringing land up, and then using that to create new land, which is a very interesting story. Again, that's one of those threads that is absolutely all over the globe, And if they all made up this version, if they all made up their stories, if they all mistook a local flood, where did that detail come from? To me, the only logical explanation is it actually happened, and it got passed down. The stories have more in common, surprisingly, than they have differences, correct? Oh, absolutely. Sometimes you have to really study them to find the commonalities, but they're definitely there. The book, once again, is called Flood Legends, Global Clues of a Common Event. And you can get a copy by calling 1-800-652-1144, or you can order online at swrc.com. Charles, again, thanks for your time. Thanks for writing such a great book, and thanks for being on the program with me. All right, well, thank you for having me, and thanks for the compliment. Well, one of God's specific instructions for Noah was to build a door in the side of the ark. Noah and his family entered the door to be saved from the flood. Everyone outside of the ark perished. Noah's family entered the ark door to escape the physical destruction of the flood, and God has provided another door to save people from the coming eternal judgment. Jesus Christ said, I am the door in John 10:7. Jesus is the door through which we must enter to be saved from our sin. And just like there was one way to get saved from the flood through the door of the ark, there's only one way to get saved from hell today, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Do you know him, friends? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Get the complete two-day look into Flood Legends with Charles Martin on CD when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can order online swrc.com. Today in our Resource Center, we have the book Flood Legends by Charles Martin. In Flood Legends, you'll discover detailed analysis of myth, legend, and historical details that are clues for a common global event. Through these legends, this epic event has remained woven into the tapestry of cultural history, sharing not just the story of survival, but the power of obedience and the fulfillment of God's enduring promise. Order your copy of Flood Legends today by calling 1-800-652-1144 or order Flood Legends online swrc.com. Watchman on the Wall is here to bring clarity to the chaos and encourage us that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Some of the ways we do that is with our free e-newsletter, A Moment of Prophecy. Timely articles and messages of hope and encouragement delivered to your inbox. Sign up today and start getting A Moment of Prophecy e-newsletter. Visit swrc.com or simply call 1-800-652-1144. We're just a few weeks away from our next in-person conference. This is a huge conference featuring 11 speakers over two full days. Friday and Saturday, March 25th and 26th in Tri-Cities, Tennessee. At this conference, you'll learn the real history of socialism from Bill Federer. What's next in Bible prophecy from Rob Linstead. The latest finds of biblical archaeology and much, much more. Get all the details by visiting the events page of our website, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. And click on Events. The Tri-Cities, Tennessee Mega Conference, March 25th and 26th. Registration is free, but seating is going fast. So register today, swrc.com, or call 1-800-652-1144. And when you're on our website, be sure to visit our online resource center, swrc.com. SWRC.com has over 900 items designed to bring clarity to the chaos and help you make sense of the world around you. Books and DVDs by the nation's leading teachers and scholars, Douglas Petrovich, Jim Fletcher, Tom Horn, Bill Federer, J.R. Church, and many, many others. Get these resources for you and for your church. SWRC.com. That's SWRC.com. One of our outreach ministries here at Watchmen on the Wall is our work with prisoners, providing them with Bibles and study materials to help them grow in their faith. To give us an important update on this ministry, here is our host, Pastor Larry Spargimino, with a very special guest. Pastor John Carlisle is with us. He is the pastor of the Bible Baptist Church in Walters, Oklahoma, and he also serves as a prison chaplain. He's had a lot of experience in church and also in working with inmates. And one of the things that's really remarkable about any minister of the gospel is that we 
as we work, we are servants of the Lord. And John has certainly seen the Lord work in a number of ways, and we're going to be talking about that. Pastor John Carlisle, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for letting me be with you. Tell us a little bit about Bible Baptist Church in Walters. How big is it? How long have you been there? And what's the ministry there like? Now, that's way out in southwest Oklahoma, I believe. That's right. It is. It's quite a small church. We live in a small community. Walters is about 3,000 people. Our church is a unique little church. You know, it's unlike a lot of the bigger churches where people tend to get lost in the crowd. In Walters, everybody knows everybody and everything about everybody, so there's no place to hide. Everybody loves each other, and we check up on each other, and with a lot of this sickness that's been going around, everybody's been really keeping close tabs on everyone, and we're more family there than you tend to be in a bigger church, so I love it very much. We have about 30 people that come on Sunday mornings as a small church, which is one of the big reasons I work out of prison as a chaplain, to be bivocational. I can work at the prison serving the Lord, and I can pastor a church serving the Lord. Pastor Carlisle, I know people often ask me, young men, for example, they feel a call to be a pastor in a local church, maybe even bivocational like you are. What do you tell them? What's some of the signs that God has his hand on your shoulder and he's calling you into ministry? And I know we don't want to run unless we're sent, but I think there are some men who are sent, but they need to know what's next. How do I know that God is calling me? Well, as you and I both know, sometimes that's harder to answer (laughs) than we would like. Truth is, is when God puts a calling on a man, there's something deep within his heart. The speaking to him we call the Holy Spirit of God. And no matter how much he tries to turn it off, you just can't get away from it. You might try and run and you might try and hide, but you cannot. Some men are quick to run to it, and I'm not so sure God's called them, I'll be honest. I actually... Try to talk sense into people who say God's called them and say, you know, I'm not so sure the ministry is this great, big, fuzzy, wonderful world that everybody thinks it is, and see where God goes from there. There is a tendency sometimes when we first get saved, we love Jesus so much, we have that first love, and we're on fire, we want to do something, well, maybe I'm going to be a pastor. And yeah, I think you're right. A little bit of good advice, pray about it, seek counsel. See what your spouse thinks about it. I think that's pretty important because she's going to be involved in it as well. You're going to be working as a team. In your local church, what is the role of the Bible, Bible preaching, the Word of God, teaching the Word of God? How do you see the Word of God functioning through you as a servant of the Lord? I would say it's paramount. I mean, the Bible is God's divine revelation to man. If you're not preaching the Bible, then you're just wasting your time. If a church is not learning the Bible, then you're wasting their time. As a pastor, my job is to ensure that our people are trained and know what God's Word says so they know what to do and what to expect. Without God's Word, there's no reason to even bother meeting. Well, I think you're absolutely right. We don't want to go to the pulpit and preach psychology or philosophy or theology. We want to preach the Word of God because there's power in the Word of God. You know, there's the famine for hearing the words of the Lord. I think we see it today. People are starving. Pastor John, you've done a lot of work with prisoners, people who are incarcerated. And, you know, I know a couple of parents who have sons in prison, and they're really heartbroken. I mean, well, we raised little Billy so well. You know, he went to Awana, he went to Sunday school, and then he got off the track and so on and so forth. What is God doing in the lives of prisoners that you know because you have firsthand experience? If a man wants to seek the Lord, he can find him. 
whether he's in prison or not. And if a man in prison wants to seek God, there are opportunities there for them. And God is absolutely changing lives in prison. I've seen men that when I first met them were knuckleheads and God got a hold of their heart and they are a different person. I've seen God deliver men from ways that really be like out of a storybook. One occasion we had a man who was put in prison for drug trafficking and it was a life without parole sentence because it was his third time. He also had a life sentence for manufacturing and he wound up getting saved. He wasn't asking the Lord to get out. He was just asking the Lord to use him. And he wound up getting his life without was dropped totally, and his life charge was reduced, and then he wound up also getting pardoned and went home. So he went from growing old and dying in prison to now he's home with his family. I warned him. I sat him down. We talked, and I said, now listen, if this sentence is dropped and you go home, you've made a vow to God. You keep that vow. Be not deceived. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You keep your word to God. And so far, as far as I know, the last I heard, that man was serving the Lord, going to church, driving a truck, providing for his family. God moved in his life in a way that I'm shocked, I'll be honest. I've been at this for a while. Well, that is so encouraging. We have been visiting with Pastor John Carlisle, pastor of Bible Baptist Church in Walters, Oklahoma. He also serves as a prison chaplain. We're going to have him back, and I'm excited about learning some of the wonderful things that God does at little churches, like in Walters, and also in prison. Remember our featured resources today, the books Flood Legends by Charles Martin and the book God Divided the Nations by Noah Hutchings. You can get both of these books for a gift of $20 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order online swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Please continue to pray with us as we move closer to our goal of the Studio 50 Project, a new updated recording studio. Your financial help is needed today. Would you please support this project with your tax-deductible gift? Call 1-800-652-1144 and let the phone operator know that you want to support the Studio 50 Project. That's 1-800-652-1144 or visit swrc.com. Thank you. This year, we have in-person conferences scheduled all across the United States, including Anchorage, Alaska and the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. Check out the complete schedule of conferences and make plans to be with us. swrc.com and click on events. That's swrc.com. Tomorrow, we continue our look at the Jewish roots of Christianity with author and teacher Larry Stamm. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily podcast. Thank you, my friends, for your prayers and continued financial support of this broadcast ministry. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com.